Episode 16, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Srinjoy Gongli, author of Quantum Computing with Silk Programming. The team discussed the challenges of quantum programming, the benefits of automatic decomputing, the future of machine learning in quantum computing, and the way that high-level abstracted quantum computing languages will affect the landscape of quantum programming. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Entangled Things. Hey, Cyprian, how are you doing today? Hi, Patrick. Very well. Ready for another great Entangled Things episode. Well, you're in for a treat because uh, we have Srinjoy Ganguly with us, who wrote a book on Silk, S-I-L-Q, the language, a functional language uh, for quantum programming. Uh, that's actually very new and uh, very exciting. So, Srinjoy, welcome. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for having me. It's, it's really a pleasure to... Uh, like you know, discuss more about this uh, exciting language and and you know more stuff about how what we can do with this new programming language, which is a high level programming language for quantum computing. Cool. Yeah, that, this is where we've had to unite across the entire world to find people willing to talk to us, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the people who like quantum, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you give us a little background? I, I I know a little bit about Silk. We've talked about it before personally, mm-hmm. but. Uh, give us the the overview of someone who's never heard of it before. Okay, so Silk is something what I call in simple words is something like the C plus plus of quantum. Just we have just as you know, like we had a, a revolution in high level programming languages for uh, classical computing. I think during nineteen seventies or eighties, so everyone started programming with C and then C plus plus developed. And then, you know, Java and all these languages mm-hmm. came. So something similar we can see happening with the quantum world as well. The only difference is here is that for the case of classical computers, we were starting from the very scratch. But now, at least for the development of quantum programming languages and that too high level or low level, if you take any any one of them, we are having the support of our already built classical computers which uh, which is helping us in the development of all these advanced languages so silk is like a c++ for quantum programming a high level language so we're seeing that richard campbell's predictions uh several <laughs> episodes again uh, ago are already coming true so um mm-hmm. i i've i've read that silk is functional and and mm-hmm. we've talked and and the, the the position is that silk it's very new isn't it it's only about a year old is that correct yeah yeah it actually was uh, published in a paper in uh, 2020 and that paper was uh, as far as i remember it was related to pro- programming and uh, logic only uh, programming and logic conference so there uh, researchers from the eth zurich introduced silk and they said that this is a f- one of the like you know simple straightforward high level programming language for quantum computing which is easier to use and you know it is suitable for beginners who would like to get started with some uh, like those who already have background on high level on uh, classical programming like c++ java so they can you know already get started with this one so i have a uh, a question here, Srinjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. People are are used to 
currently think about uh, quantum mm-hmm. computing programming in terms of uh, probably gates and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the unitary matrices and and then mm-hmm. all, all that like super low level from a programming standpoint right from mm-hmm. the stack standpoint these are already very high level because there's a lot of stuff happening below mm-hmm. that right but from a programming yeah. level right this is this is very low level so can you elaborate a little bit on where does silk stand as compared to let's say the basic uh, gate based quantum computing that mm-hmm. we hear a lot these days about mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's that's really a good question so you know that that comes to the like you know it is like solving the challenges of quantum programming so one of the challenges which we have currently is the gate based model as you said so we need to have the knowledge of low level architecture for quantum computing right as you, as you have mentioned but silk tries to remove this barrier by having a simple uh, by having a simple code structure and by having the uncomputation involved so in uncomputation the, what we do is that you know we free the we free the memory we try to free the memory just as we do in any programming language after we use it we free them so uncomputation is something that we do for quantum computing so in other languages if you see other low level languages you have to uncompute yourself so for example you have some bunch of c not gates or something or bunch of hadamards then you know you would have to again repeat that same pattern in a opposite way to uncompute to free off the memory so you're talking so, about memory collection yeah it's yeah exactly it's about the memory collection issue so you know this is about but what silk does it it you know it does the uncomputation automatically that is the main useful feature of this so apart from this uh, uh, like you know the simple concise uh, structure of this uh, language we also have this uh, major challenge addressed here which is of the uncomputation so that is why silk is uh, really good to learn because of this because other languages if you see you have to uncompute manually here it is automatic and, and you've and, said oh sorry uh, yeah just just wanted to to mm-hmm. add one clarification for our listeners patrick mm-hmm. uh, one of the core rules of programming in quantum computing programming is that you need to return the qubits in the same state you you mm-hmm. you, you got them right so i i and stringjoy correct me if i'm wrong this is what we are talking about right the uncomputation is yeah, basically exactly. you need you need to revert back those those qubits it's mm-hmm. uh, patrick if you remember the good old days of reference counting mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> i don't program- call them the good old days <laughs> the bad old days exactly so this is like wiping down the treadmill after you leave the gym <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah just you know return back to like where it was like already something like that and this comes from the uh, laws of quantum mechanics actually about the reversible property right and and this but this is a, a, a savings we're starting to trade we're like getting the languages to do the things that we have to do by default that are that are easy yeah, to do it saves time uh, right and it becomes easy and you do not have to like you know think about that okay like i have i have made such a long circuit and now again i have to uh, like you know reverse that circuit back to uncompute that's that's really okay. challenging right so it could could cut the code in half we could cut the code but you know again like you know having so many gates again that is not feasible uh, because the quantum mm-hmm. computers which we have today they they are like you know they are fragile the qubits we have are uh, very yeah. delicate they Incoherent. are not stable 
yeah decoherence that's why they suffer from decoherence so that's why we right. we cannot put so much pressure on them that okay let us apply hundreds and thousands of c nodes and then again let us uncompute them so like that so one of the things do you think it, it that's a, mm-hmm. a big problem to solve and i think and silk is an open source language so it's going to be continuing to evolve mm-hmm. it's it's not a one trick pony mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. did you have a problem i mean you probably had to go and dig into the source code uh, in order to write this book, didn't you? Or, or how did uh, no, you, how did that you provide- was, no, that was actually not necessary for me. Like when I started learning, I took help of my co-author, uh, Thomas Cambier. He has worked, uh, on silk language in his master's thesis at uh, ETH Zurich. So, you know, I took his help and then I explored it on my own as well. So, you know, like like that only I learned the language. The language was easy to learn. Why? Because uh, even though currently I am not coding in C++ or Java, but previously uh, during my school days and even the earlier part of my uh, university life, I have coded in C++, C language. And that's why, you know, it was easy to pick up for me. It's and a C-like syntax. syntax. Yeah, it's a C-like syntax. It's like, you know... Uh, uh, like a C mixed with Python, something like that. It's a mixed kind of. So okay. here's a very practical question, uh, Srin Choi. Mm-hmm. Let's say the average quantum computing enthusiast uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, listens to us, right, and says, okay, I'll want to try to uh, start programming in Silk, right? What, mm-hmm. what do you need to do in order to, to get started with, with, with Silk? Um, well, in my opinion, like when I started, I just got familiarity with the like variable uh, names and how do you define the variables in silk and the different annotations. So if you mm-hmm. see there is an annotation uh, exclamation mark, then there is annotation for Q free. So if if the beginner just understands these annotations and defining variables and control flow, they can easily get uh, started with silk. It's not very uh, difficult to define functions in Silk. Always we need to have a main function and we need to have another function in which we uh, want to do the real task. And then from the main function, we can call that function. Because in Silk, what we have is that without the main function, the other function, the task which we want to perform, that won't happen. So that's why main is compulsory. Inside that, we can call several functions. So in a nutshell, if I read correctly what you say, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, The learning curve or the, let's say, the entry-level learning curve for Silk uh, is not that big, right? Sounds low for a programmer. Yeah, yeah. For programmers, it's really easy. They might find this more easier than C++ coding. That's great. This this sounds to me like like, (laughs) like, like great, great news, right? And just out of curiosity... What mm-hmm. what kind of of environment did you use to uh, uh, to to program in Silk? Uh, so did Silk, you use a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A, a like a website or did you deploy something on your machine? Container? What? Yeah. What, uh, no, what, no. How, actually, how you... yeah. Actually, actually, I used uh, the Microsoft Visual Studio Code. That is the only uh, thing which is currently available for Silk. It is currently not supported by uh, you know bracket like Amazon bracket platform or uh, maybe some other wow. other cloud platform oh, yeah okay so it's it's currently all is in the local it's all in the local so that's why 
we I just used the Microsoft Visual Studio Code and there I installed the Silk plugin and that's it. We are ready to go. It's currently all simulation or can you can you run it against IBM or IonQ or one of the other platforms? Uh, not not currently. It's very, very new. So currently it doesn't uh, support running on quantum hardware. But I hope that very soon that compatibility will be made. But currently mm. all the things which I have performed, all, all the algorithms which you saw in the book, they are performed on my classical computer simulation. We are seeing a bit of an explosion. I mean, it's not, it's a small mm-hmm. explosion because there's not hundreds of players, but, mm-hmm. but there's a, a number of languages now mm-hmm. um, that have emerged, you know, to be the, the language. I don't think one will win uh, unless mm-hmm. it's really a killer, mm-hmm. um, but, but Silk's the newest. It's, it's definitely the newest one that I've heard of. Yep. Um, and I, I was interested in the fact that it said, fun, you know, functional. That was a functional language. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to, you know, be less code, which you've definitely described it as, mm-hmm. uh, and they tend to be more task oriented. You know, we're just going to mm-hmm. get it done. Yeah. Um, yep. Do you think that Silk gives the developer any hints at what they should actually do with it, or is it like all the rest of the languages, which it's still up to you to figure out? You know what what you're doing. That seems okay. to be a big problem. Yeah. So in this, like when I was coding with Silk and when I encountered errors, the errors were what I found is pretty much self-explanatory. So if you have gone through the book, gone through my book, and if you have gone through the documentation a little bit, uh, then you will find out that the errors which the Silk provides, if you are making any mistakes, they are pretty much self-explanatory. So the beginner won't find any issues to actually correct the errors because, you know, uh, since Silk was very new and when I was coding and when I was making mistakes, I didn't found any answers on the internet. So I didn't search the internet because I knew that this is a new language and I won't find a single stack overflow or any any kind of other help from Cura or any other sources. Yeah, so I was on my own. So when I was making errors, I was just, you know, trying to recall the documentation and like you know recall what the documentation said uh, like you know read the words carefully what it said what is q free what is m free and what the syntax should be exactly so like that only i rectified my mistakes and it was not that's, very that's hard that's a lonely place to be that's a lonely place to be we we i re- i worked on a project in very mm-hmm. very early beta days of .net mm-hmm. when we had to go and look at the ml to figure out how to do things mm-hmm. <clears throat> so i understand that it's it's tough to it's tough. Uh, we had it's the advantage tough, yeah. of, yeah, we had the advantage that .NET um, Visual Studio was written in .NET, so we could mm-hmm. decompile that and look at how they were doing things. Um, you had access to the to the author of the language, I think it sounds like. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there any? Do you see any exciting developments of of other organizations picking it up? The fact that you can run it in Microsoft uh, Visual Studio Code seems to be a good uh, a, a good sign that it's going to be um, mm-hmm. at least supported or popularized. You see any other signs? Uh, currently, I I haven't seen any other signs, but but still I'm early. hoping. Yeah, it's still very early to say actually because it's only been an year, and you know uh, we came up with this book, so you know still people are like you know uh, exploring other languages as well, and of course no one is a, a perfect winner, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, it will take some time. But what I can say is that the code which is written on Silk is much more uh, reduced and simplified because of functional language. 
And uh, if you compare this code, this co uh, code can be mostly compared with the Q sharp because Q sharp is also somewhat closer to like, you know, that high level kind of flavor. Q sharp also gives right. that kind of flavor. Yeah. So that's why Silk and Q sharp are like a direct competitor kind of, they can be compared. And both written in Visual Studio code. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, and if you uh, check the documentation of Silk, you will find that uh, uh, if I remember correctly, there were some quantum hackathons and those uh, hackathon codes have been converted using the Silk language. And when I saw them, the codes uh, looked really compact compared to QSharp. Mm. You're, you're making my life harder because I have a session I'm working on where I write mm -hmm. Shor's algorithm in every language that's out uh, or every popular language. Mm -hmm. And now I got to add Silk to that presentation. So thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that leads me to how do, how do our listeners get your book? Where, where is it published? How do you, you know, how would it be ordered? Yeah, it's, it's available uh, on the PACT website. So if you type uh, quantum P-A-C-K-T. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. If you type quantum computing with Silk, it will automatically come in Google. I think the first Excellent. link will be the book link only. You heard it here. <laughs> so, <laughs> Cyprian, I, I'm, I'm holding the two of you back from your favorite topic since you're both machine language, AI, quantum <laughs> people. And it's tough to hold two people. It's like, it's like a trapped ions. It's hard <laughs> to hold them apart. So uh, do we want to talk about the book and the language before I, I cede the, the stage to machine learning and, and that kind of information? Or do you have any other questions about the, the language? And also, Shrindra, is there anything else you'd like to highlight about Silk before we lose ourselves in machine learning? Yeah, so like, you know, I, I just wanted to uh, mention this, that, you know, those who are getting started with this language, you know, definitely they should... Uh, prefer reading the book the reason because is like in the documentation if you see the information which is given in the documentation is uh, is very unorganized it's not yeah. so organized and uh, there are no pictures of why, how you can install and how you can install like you know special characters which silk data type uses so all those steps are being illustrated in the book in proper details and also uh, in documentation, you will find only a simple implementation of, I, if I remember, Grover's search algorithm. Uh, but in our book, we have uh, covered most of the, like, you know, most commonly used uh, quantum algorithms, which uh, you can, like, you know, you can extend them to other algorithms as well easily. Yes. Yeah, with a few lines of silk code. So that's why the book becomes important. And also, this book explores. Uh, the special feature is that apart from algorithms, we also explore some applications. So in the application, like uh, as by my colleague, Thomas Kembeer has written the chapters on quantum error correction and uh, quantum key distribution. So those also readers will find very interesting. And it's simple and straightforward implementation in Silk. And the last chapter, it doesn't have any code, but it's a basic introduction to QML. And uh, it's, nice. uh, yeah, it's uh, like, you know, it's an exercise. I have left this as an exercise for the reader to implement some QML stuff, basic QML, not very difficult, but, you know, basic QML stuff in Silk as well. So, and, and you're talking about quantum machine learning. Yeah, yeah, quantum machine learning, exactly. Which is the perfect segue. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. what you're, 
So quantum machine learning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actually just, just for the fact that it has that chapter, it's probably very ahead of its time, mm-hmm. uh, because people are, people are, you know, very hand wavy about quantum and AI and quantum mm-hmm. machine learning. So what, what's your take on that? What, what, what do you, uh, mm-hmm. what do you want to tell us about quantum and machine learning? Okay. So actually, my take is that it's actually not completely quantum or completely classical. Completely classical, we already know. And uh, com- nothing is completely quantum currently. If you if you see right. any any industry, if you see any uh, quantum computing industry, they are even startups also as well. Not only the established one, but even startups also. Whenever they say about quantum machine learning, they are referring to this hybrid model. So in hybrid model, we have the mix, like, you know, we have the mix of this classical and quantum. So some operations are done by a classical computer and some operations are done on a quantum computer, which are quantum suitable and the classical suitable are done on classical. So it's a hybrid model. It's like they cannot live without each other. It's something like that. So that's that's uh, what I say is QML. It's hybrid. It's not completely alone. We see that in, in Shor's algorithm. Shor's algorithm doesn't actually factor large numbers. It gives yeah. you the order finding so a classical computer can find it very yeah, quickly. Yeah, exactly. It give, it throws you some numbers, maybe 0, 4, 12, 15 or something. And then from that, you do some classical post-processing. You apply some formula and basic techniques. And then you find out that, okay, whether you can find the factors or not like that. So here's where I mm-hmm. come in with the uh, elephant mm-hmm. in the room like question, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, we mm-hmm. we know that that machine learning uh, mm-hmm. is essentially right uh, mm-hmm. uh, exists because classical computing has this uh, fairly easy capacity of of reading and analyzing mm-hmm. large amounts of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing out uh, results and and so forth right and mm. we know that uh, one of the let's say uh, mind bending uh, mm-hmm. uh, things that happens in the world of quantum is the fact that you cannot actually read state because of the of the collapse right so mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, 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 the question I always face when I start talking uh, about quantum machine learning mm-hmm. is yeah, 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 Cyprian, this is all great. And then this is amazing and, and, and so mm-hmm. forth. But, mm-hmm. but given this, uh, uh, kind of, uh, let's say, fundamental difficulty of reading and writing data as mm-hmm. we know it today mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, with quantum systems, right? Uh, how are we going to apply uh, principles and algorithms and and virtually anything related to to machine learning? So I would really really like our uh, listeners to hear your your take on this. Mm-hmm. Which at the end of the day, long story short, is how do we manage data for machine learning in quantum machine learning? Okay, that's that's really a good question. So you know when I say that it's hybrid. This is this is what I mean. When you have some classical data and not too large again, because again, quantum hardware is not perfect, right? So we have to remember that always. So again, not so large chunks of like big data in terabytes. I'm talking about very simple stuff. Okay. It might not be so much interest to many, but you know, we always start with simple things. So if we have a, you know, simple data, we encode it in quantum state and there are several encoding schemes. So 
you know, we can encode that data using the amplitude. So if we have a superposition, if we have a superposition state, we can actually have those data points in the amplitude of those quantum states. So for example, if the data is 0 0.30 and another one is like 0 0.70, then we can write it as 0 0.30 get 0 plus 0 0.70 get 1. So that's a superposition state and 0 0.30 and 0 0.70 represent our classical data points. That's a simple amplitude encoding. And now there is another kind of encoding, which is the phase encoding. That's also very straightforward. You just take a rotational gate, a parameterized gate, okay, which has like, you know, we have our X gate, which is X, X axis rotation, Y axis rotation and Z axis rotation around the block sphere. We can take one of those gates and we input our classical data through those theta values. So we have, for example, if we have 0 0.30, then we can have Rx 0 0.30. So that is how you encode in a phase of that block sphere, this classical data. And similarly, you can also have Ry of 0 0.70. So you use another gate to encode this phase angle. To, uh, to encode this classical data into that phase of the block sphere. So, you know, these are some of the ways in which we can encode from, we can go from classical to quantum. And then the processing starts in the quantum world, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I really liked uh, your, your take on, on, the, on the hybrid approach. And mm -hmm. I think this also links quite well with the example that Patrick provided uh, with respect to the factorization problem, mm -hmm. right? Because if, if you think about it, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. within uh, a lot of the machine, the classical computing machine learning algorithms, at some point you end up, for example, solving a difficult optimization problem, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And uh, with, with quantum machine learning, it turns out that you don't even need a universal quantum computer, but if you are able to kind of isolate an, an optimization problem, for, mm. for instance, you could go with adiabatic quantum computing and, mm -hmm. and just solve that optimization problem, which, by the way, has its own means to embed the universe mm -hmm. of the problem into the, yep. the, the, the quantum world, right? Mm -hmm. Using a quantum annealing uh, uh, approach for, mm -hmm. for, for, for instance, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's, that's a great point to make that you don't need to solve like end to end a full problem that you have in mm -hmm. classical computing. In many cases, it's just mm -hmm. fine to, let's say, use the power of quantum computing to uh, uh, increase the efficiency of solving uh, the hardest part of a certain problem or mm -hmm. some of the hardest parts of the of, of a certain problem, right? Cyprian, yep. I, you exactly. just gave me an idea yeah. and, and I wonder if anybody's mentioned this before. I wonder if the near-term solution might be a triple hybrid where we have the classical computer aided by the adiabatic, you know, D-wave system that also uses the the quantum gates for certain small parts of it. I, I I would not rule that out, right? I mean the combination mm. and uh, the the other thing that I see uh, as as a trend. And by the way, uh, we have discussed this on one of our previous uh, uh, episodes. How, for instance, uh, in an adiabatic quantum computing system like a D-wave mm -hmm. processor was actually used to simulate uh, some uh, behavior that in turn 
could be used to provide advancements in the field of topological quantum computing, which is uh, obviously one of the, let's say, uh, most promising ways to build stable universal quantum computers. Mm. So mm. I would not be surprised that in the medium and long term, we would start to see some kind of convergence between the different approaches, what today seems to be like two worlds apart, right? Universal yeah. gate or gates-based quantum computing versus mm-hmm. adiabatic quantum computing start to, to, to converge to, to some areas and some approaches that we, we can't even imagine right now. So I would definitely not rule that out. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, yeah, even I agree so, with that. So, yeah. So, Srinjai, the other mm-hmm. big question that I have is, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, we all love kind of like machine learning in general, but uh, mm-hmm. the one particular field of machine learning that took the world by storm probably for the, let's say, last decade is mm-hmm. is deep learning, right? Yeah. So, I would really like to 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 hear your your opinion and your take on how do you think that that uh, or how do you see deep learning uh, factored into quantum computing. There, there's already a term that was coined for this. It's called deep quantum learning, right? How, mm-hmm. how do you see the future and the involvement of this of this field? This is one of the things that, again, mm-hmm. people ask me a lot when we discuss about machine learning in the space of quantum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good question, actually. So when I was also starting with quantum machine learning, I I you know. I started to analyze like, you know, the analogy between the quantum world and the classical world. So how, how it is, how is it different? So when I saw this hybrid approach, then I saw that, okay, the differences lie on the variational circuit. So we used some parameterized quantum circuits, which also have parameters. You can consider those parameters as thetas and those thetas you find same thetas, those weights in the classical deep learning. That means in neural network models as well. So what we did, we just took this analogy from the classical. We got this inspiration from the classical model that, okay, deep learning is based on ANN and artificial neural networks, and they have these weights. So why not make these weights as thetas or some angles in our quantum circuit so that we can utilize these parameterized gates like Rx gate, Ry gate, Rz gate, which are parameterized by this theta. And why not we can optimize it using a classical computer? So only part that will be quantum is that circuit, which is known as a variational circuit. The variational term, because the thetas are varying, they can be optimized and they can be changed every time to reach a certain you know value for convergence. And then rest of the part is classical, just as you train a normal deep neural network. It's like that only. So, you know, this variational circuits, they are like quantum neural networks, what we call, because their model is inspired deeply from this classical neural network model. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I really think that one of the big promises of, mm-hmm. of, of quantum machine learning uh, uh, lies in the the potential of development in in quantum deep learning because mm, mm. Uh, even with the like like huge models that we have today like i'm thinking about i don't know like uh, gpt3 for instance right yeah. the hundreds of billions of nodes and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just just increasing but 
for me, it's clear that the 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 capacity, the mm-hmm. the classical computing capacity, however large we are going to uh, to to build it, it's going to be physically limited, right? There's yeah. there's a, a ceiling where not yet very close to it, but there's a definite mm-hmm. capacity ceiling in, in classical computing that no matter what we will do, right, even if we kind of uh, cover the whole surface of the planet in data centers, right, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we're not going to be able to, to grow more than that, right? Maybe Elon Musk will create some data centers <laughs> on Mars, but again, that's mm-hmm. still just maybe just duplicating that capacity. It's, mm-hmm. it's nowhere an exponential increase and i i uh, it's it's kind of like uh partly uh conviction but partly also hope Mm -hmm. that we will see advancements in these fields because i would like to to kind of pick your brain on the other side of the coin as well right like Mm -hmm. what do you see some of the serious difficulties of applying quantum or applying machine learning in the world of quantum computing what 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 mm. are the, the the hurdles uh in in your opinion like the the big ones the big ones so the first one is the one which you all already know that's the qubits uh phase decoherence and second mm. one is also related to that so you know in cl- in classical computing whenever we train a deep neural network we use optimization algorithms and optimization algorithms take advantage of a technique called backpropagation to optimize the uh, values of those thetas, of those parameters. And backpropagation involves computing gradients and storing them in the forward pass and then reusing them in the backward pass. And now in quantum, the problem is that we really do not have a quantum memory because the qubits are not stable, therefore they cannot store those gradient values. So instead, what we have is that if we have a circuit, we can just shift that circuit by a parameter, by an angle, maybe pi by two, and we can just you know subtract another pi by two. So shift it positive and shift it negative, and then we can subtract them. So that is known as the parameter shift rule. And this shift rule, you can find more about this on the uh, Zanadu's uh, Penny Lane website, a tutorial on the parameter shift rule, where they have shown that you can use parameter shift rule on quantum hardware because that's that's easy. Even though it is like you know it it it's like uh, it takes a lot of time to compute the gradients when the number of parameters increase. So if you have a lot of thetas involved to optimize, then it takes a lot of time. But they also show that backpropagation is not possible. Why? Because in the forward pass, we calculate those gradients. And then again, we have to store them temporarily. And then again, we have to backpropagate. So we multiply those gradients again. And that is not possible on a real hardware quantum computer because we do not have a memory. So these are the two challenges. So qubit decoherence and this quantum memory problem because of which quantum machine learning will take some time to, you know, progress. But we can work on that's why a lot of research is now being carried out how we can like you know use uh classical uh simulations for these quantum computers till the time the quantum hardware progresses because the progress is a bit slower that's why yeah yeah i would certainly 100 percent agree with with what you consider to be the the top uh, uh challenges because 
uh, that's kind of ties back to my to my uh, opening question in this part mm-hmm. of our of our talk, right? Right. I, it's it's really really difficult to imagine today, mm-hmm. uh, kind of using the memory registry approach, right? Yeah. Where you yeah. compute a piece of of data, you put it in a registry, and then it just sits there, and you have mm-hmm. the luxury of returning to it mm-hmm. after a certain number of want. steps or a yeah. certain time and just read it and uh, mm-hmm. factor it back into your 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 process this is that's not possible uh, this, right now yeah yes well, yes and Cyprian's been telling me that this is a, the primary challenge and I agree with him for four years plus more than four years um I, it, but somebody's gonna crack it mm-hmm. it's I don't think it's impossible I think no, there's gonna be impossible. some way if we, we have, just have to figure out what it is the, yeah if we can reduce the uh uh, the qubit decoherence, then we can have those quantum states there on those stored in the qubits for a longer period. Even if we can store them for maybe like uh, one or two hours or maybe more, then also we can at least, you know, try to perform some computations based on and, that. And we also need, and we need many more logical of course, qubits. Yeah, available. of course. So, yeah, that is that is very true. Yeah. So if we got to the point where we had a million quantum a million logical qubits mm-hmm. with a decoherence time measured in hours, then the memory problem becomes straightforward or it's still hard to imagine how you would do that because every time you read it, you would destroy it. Yeah, that's that's really, uh, you know, that's a bit difficult one. <laughs> that's that's hard to <laughs> a imagine. Little, actually, it's yeah. a little difficulty. Yeah, yeah, and- yeah. Just this is one of the things that I like to I like to point out to our audience because it's mm-hmm. it's it's one of the kind of sometimes surprising things, right? Is what does a long time mean in classical computing versus a long time in quantum, right? Like in in long time in classical could mean like decades, right? Storing information and then being able to 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 retrieve it. Like yeah. sometimes a long time in quantum means, yeah, instead of uh, 10 at minus four seconds, if we could just go to 10 at minus three, mm-hmm. that would be like a <laughs> heck of a uh, much longer <laughs> period of time, yeah. right? So uh, when you discuss about time intervals, we mm-hmm. always need to remember that the scale of comparison uh, is is completely different in quantum it's computing. Computers... Like, like like in quantum computing, an hour currently is pretty well equivalent to uh, uh, forever. Right? Well, in, yeah. in, in that, class, the, the time scale at, at 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 which quantum computers operate nowadays. So yeah. that's that's always fascinating for me to to remember that. Right? It's like everything follows that rule in quantum. A cold room in a classical world is forty degrees, and in quantum, it's it's millikelvin. Yeah. So everything's yeah. bigger or smaller, I guess. And I wish that it's like we Texas. Can something like you know where we can, like you know, we have this one hour or two hour based qubits, and we can perform some like you know simulation of some <laughs> molecules or something to find some uh, drug for uh, cancer treatment or something. That's that's of course that's far fetched, but yeah, yeah uh, one day that 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 is going to happen very very soon. I, I know. I, this. I can so- imagine our our nephews. Kind of discussing, you know, when our grandparents were wishing for <laughs> qubits that could last for minutes. <laughs> and now we make yeah. them out of wood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
uh, we can only hope. Yeah, let's um, hope for the best, you know. So, so we're mm-hmm. coming close to the end of our time, and mm-hmm. uh, it's been great. It's been a very, very good conversation yeah. in, on both both it's veins. Super awesome. Yeah. Um, what else should we talk about before we we come to a close? Anything Anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, mention any any last questions that you're dying to ask, Cyprian, or are, are we at a logical end? I, I, from my side, I, I had the luxury of asking uh, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the hard questions to, to, to Stranger. And, and mm-hmm. by the way, thank you very much. Uh, uh, it was an absolute yeah, pleasure uh, uh, debating and discussing together, mm-hmm. especially the, uh, the potential future of machine learning in, in, mm-hmm. in, in quantum. So I would say, Stranger, if you want to, to make any closing remarks, uh, please. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, just have a have a look at this book, uh, Quantum Computing with Silk Programming. It's it's really great to, like, you know, get started with this uh, new revolution of high-level programming languages. And it is because of uh, you guys only that uh, these, these products become successful and many other programmers start contributing to Silk. And secondly, lastly, I would like to say that I have launched my own Udemy course on quantum computing with oh, yes. uh, yeah with Qiskit IBM Qiskit. Now I am an IBM Qiskit advocate as well. So uh, that's that's really uh, it's really a pleasure to become a Qiskit advocate, and I thank uh, uh, IBM humbly for this a great uh, like you know great achievement. So so please check out Very the well Udemy done. course. Yeah, and like you know yeah thank you thank you so much and in future i am also going to launch more courses on like uh, the kiskit exam uh, certification and as well as on quantum machine learning quantum error correction and uh, like you know how how you can find uh, career opportunities uh, in the space of quantum computing without a phd of course uh, you do not well, always need a phd yeah I hear a lot of shows in the making, so we're going to have you back for sure. And uh, hopefully, yeah. uh, and we have a, a myriad of topics, it seems, to to, to discuss with you, including mm-hmm. uh, maybe a whole show d- dedicated to the machine learning side of things again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Th- and thank you very much. It's it's great talking to you again. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll be, you'll be hearing from you again, I'm sure, on, on this. Mm-hmm. And, and for now, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, that's it for Entangled Things. <laughs>